0: See, this is why I'm thinking... Do you
1: not have an option to just have, like, a silent tap?
0: Well, it's not even... Hang on, on, your
1: trackpad? on. No, I mean, like, if you just tap it instead of click it. Like, if you go to the trackpad settings.
0: Sister. Trackpad. Point and click. Secondary click. Click with two fingers. Tracking speed. I don't think it's...
1: Well, there should be one that says tap to click. Tap with one finger. Tap it might be at the bottom.
0: No, nope. there's tracking, sp- set up Bluetooth trackpad, tracking speed, tap to, c- okay, tap to click with one finger.
1: Yeah,
0: turn that one on. Oh, neat. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. See? See? Oh, see, I up I clicking. I'm so used to clicking, I'm going to keep. What's that clicking noise? Um, I'm going to keep doing that. Thank you, tech support.
1: You're
0: welcome. Hi, this is Mark.
1: And this is Emily.
0: And And we we can do do this this all day. day! A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. It's another Friday night here in Studio M. How are things over in your neck of the woods, Emily, in Studio E?
1: I'm going to try and not sweat to death, considering it has summertime in October here.
0: We are recording this in late October. It's about a week before Halloween, and we're having a bit of a summer reprise.
1: The AC in our building is officially off, so... If it gets much warmer than this, we might be in some trouble.
0: It's been quite warm here. We've had our windows open. I did my run this afternoon in shorts for the first time in several weeks. Hopefully you don't melt into a puddle in your booth over there. So, tonight we will be reviewing Iron Man 2. But first, MCU news. Uh,
1: (laughs) Good, yeah, that's solid (laughs) 90s local news content.
0: It was supposed to be like 1930s local news content. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and all ships at sea. Let's go to press. Flash.
1: There we go, yeah. Marvel
0: Cinematic 130s. Universe News. Lots of Spider Man 3 news. Anyway, we have a fair amount of news about one upcoming movie. It's like three sets of news about one movie, and it's all about. Spider-Man 3. We're hearing all sorts of stuff about Spider-Man 3, first of which we are hearing that Benedict Cumberbatch will be appearing in the movie as Doctor Strange, which is cool, I think, because I love Doctor Strange. Emily knows how much I love Doctor Strange, so I'm kind of looking forward to that, if it's true. Emily, have you seen Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2, the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies?
1: I've seen the first Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man movie, but I don't think I've seen the other one.
0: Okay, you other didn't see two? number two. There are two. Two. two.
1: And I have not seen the Tobey Maguire ones.
0: You haven't seen the Tobey Maguire. Okay. Jamie Foxx appears as the villain in Amazing Spider-Man 2. He plays Electro and Supposedly, he is going to be making an appearance in Spider-Man 3 in the MCU, which is very intriguing. Speaking of Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, we're hearing that both of them are going to be in Spider-Man 3 also. This is fascinating because this, on top of the news that Benedict Cumberbatch is going to be in the movie, keep in mind, Benedict Cumberbatch's next appearance as Doctor Strange is going to be in a movie called Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, so some are speculating if there's going to be some other multiverse connection, and that that's why we're going to be seeing kind of like a live action Spider-Verse kind of thing going on with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield and Jamie Foxx.
1: After Spider-Man Homecoming, I was worried that they wouldn't be able to make a good Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland, but I really enjoyed Far From Home. All that is to say, they will not be able to beat Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. In terms of a good multiverse Spider-Man movie. That movie is so good.
0: Into the Spider-Verse is a very high bar to conquer. That is such an amazing film for a whole host of reasons.
1: That's not Marvel, but, like, we could do a two- or three-hour podcast, I think, on Into the (laughs) Spider-Verse.
0: We should. I mean, eventually we're going to run out of movies.
1: Talking about Spider-Verse, talk about Venom.
0: Talk about... Okay. If we must.
1: We'll bring in a guest for Venom.
0: Oh, great. You two are going to gang up on me, whoever the other person is, right? I'm going to have to make four. I need to find another person who feels the same way I do about Venom. But I get it. I get it. you gotta, you got to gotta, gotta cape up for Venom. I get it. So, that's actually it for MCU news this week. So, on to our main attraction. Iron Man 2 opened May seventh, two 2010. It stars, of course, Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Don Cheadle, Scarlett Johansson, Sam Rockwell, Mickey Rourke, and Samuel L. Jackson. It's written by Justin Thoreau, an actor who's been in such films as David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, American Psycho, and the 2019 Lady and the Tramp live-action remake. He was also a screenwriter for Tropic Thunder, which, as most of you probably know, starred Robert Downey Jr. He happens to be a Washington, D.C. native, which is where this podcast is recorded. Jon Favreau returns to the director's chair, becoming the first person to direct more than one MCU film. The film had a budget of somewhere between $170 million and $200 million, and it ended up grossing $623.9 million, so a pretty big hit. When the first movie was of success back in 2008, there was very little doubt in anyone's mind that there was gonna be a sequel. Its very existence should be no surprise. Where would you rank this in your Pantheon of one to twenty three?
1: So earlier today I was trying to figure out if I had written down my list anywhere besides the old list that I can't find, of course. But I think I would probably put this around Captain Marvel. So if anyone wants to go back and listen to the Captain Marvel episode and see where I ranked that, you could probably put Iron Man one place higher, or like half a place higher than Captain Marvel.
0: you put Iron Man 2 one place higher than Captain Marvel? Yeah. I was thinking about this. There are 23 movies... This one, it's not my bottom three. I don't dislike it that much, but it's probably going to hover like somewhere between like 15 and 19. It's not at the bottom of the barrel for me, but like I said, it's not one of my favorites.
1: Right, and I think I've probably mentioned this before. The Marvel movies that are in my bottom three are there because I actually hate them. Like, I don't want to watch them, and I don't want to watch them ever again from the first time that I saw them. But all the rest of the movies... I like them well enough, and so it's hard to be like, oh, this movie is terrible, because my three terrible movies are just so bad, in my opinion.
0: It'll be interesting, because given what we're doing here with this podcast, you're going to be forced to rewatch all three of those movies. I'm curious to see which ones you're talking about. Don't tell me. I will find out in the natural course of time, but you have me intrigued now, Emily.
1: Yeah, they'll be easy to guess.
0: I think I already know at least one of them, and that one's coming up kind of soon, if I'm right. So, Iron Man 2. The movie begins with Tony Stark revealing to the world that he's Iron Man on TV, and Anton Vanko watches the announcement in Moscow with his son Ivan, and then he dies moments later. Grief-stricken, Ivan pulls out blueprints for the original Stark arc reactor, plans which are credited to Vanko and Howard Stark. He starts building his own mini arc reactor, much like Tony's. And it's at this point we've got the building stuff montage very similar to the one in which we see Tony and Jensen building the Mark One armor in Iron Man 1. Right down to Vanko hammering hot iron on an anvil with that rhythmic clang, clang, clang. Kind of a dark version of Tony's building armor montage in the first movie. And did you notice all the serial stalker esque newspaper clippings of Tony taped to the walls? Clearly, Vanko has a beef with Tony.
1: I was kind of just waiting for the red conspiracy theory string to connect all. Yeah. Of- all of the pieces if he's like trying to figure out where tony is he's connecting all the little lines
0: i'm waiting to have like stuff on the opposite wall of the room and he's got like red string going through the room like big spiderweb or something yeah
1: i'd also love to get some close-up pictures of Vonko's tattoos he's got them on his feet they're on his hands they're up on his neck i just think it'd be really cool i'm sure there's some sort of art filled out Of all of his tattoos.
0: I used to have the Iron Man 2 art book, and I don't remember if that's in there or not. I do wonder if those are tattoos that were drawn on him or if they belong to Mickey Rourke. That would be an interesting thing to find out. We fast forward six months later. Tony jumps out of an airplane in the Iron Man suit and makes a typically flashy arrival in Flushing, Queens, New York. At the opening ceremony of the first stark expo like the one we saw in captain america the first avenger since 1974.
1: i don't like his suit in this scene and not his iron man suit that's fine but his dress suit like it looks more like a hugh hefner robe situation when tony has plenty of nice regular fitted suits that he looks good in but instead he's Got that weird bow tie situation going on. I don't know. It just, it didn't hit me as like a typical Tony Stark outfit.
0: It somehow bothered your fashion sense?
1: It did, yes.
0: It did look a little like he had bell bottoms, but the trousers were flared a little bit. Almost like he was wearing pajamas.
1: Long story short, I didn't like the suit. Continue telling the story, please. Storytelling. very well
0: this scene made shoot to thrill leapfrog over sink the pink to become my favorite acdc song of all time i keep thinking you hear a lot of acdc in this movie you really only hear two songs but the sensibility of that band just kind of lingers in anything related to tony stark i also love for all the G-Wiz factor of tony's arrival it's still not perfect he hits one of the fireworks on the way down and gets knocked back which i always think is really funny i laugh at that every time i see it whenever anyone asks me what I want to do for my 50th birthday party. I refer to them to the scene of Tony landing at the Stark Expo. Uh, I would like to do that. I don't think it's actually going to happen, but one can dream. You know, I'm not sure I'll be able to show up in an Iron Man suit. going to take a wild guess that my wife will take issue with the cheerleaders, but I'll take what I can get.
1: Yeah, I think I'd agree with her. No one needs the cheerleaders.
0: This is Tony. Tony is the embodiment of a little much, isn't he?
1: (laughs) Tony a little too much, Stark.
0: So Tony starts his speech by bragging about how he single-handedly brought about world peace.
1: Six months is sure a long time of uninterrupted world peace, but honestly, I don't think I could roll my eyes any harder. Because I love Tony, and I've said this before, even though I don't always agree with him, he's probably my favorite Avenger. But I feel like he could have at least tried to make it a year before he's like, I'm the bringer of world peace. We need a longer thread of consistent world peace before you start bragging.
0: (laughs) I don't know, and the way the world is now, the way it has been for a long time, one month of uninterrupted world peace sounds like an accomplishment to me, let alone six. Even though we see Tony starting to grow a little bit and starting to mature a little bit, when it comes down to it, Tony is always going to be Tony. I love his speech. I'm not saying that the world is enjoying its longest period of uninterrupted peace in years because of me. I'm not saying that from the ashes of captivity never has a greater phoenix metaphor been personified in human history. I'm not saying that Uncle Sam can kick back on a lawn chair sipping on an iced tea because I haven't come across anyone who's man enough to go toe-to-toe with me on my best day. Please it's not about me. <laughs> How he throws that in at the end is just, of course, just yes. priceless. But please, it's not about me. It's
1: never about you, Tony, of course. And
0: then we get the little film flashback to his dad. This is the first time that we see John Slattery playing Howard Stark. And he looks very Walt Disney-esque, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, he does. I don't think I've seen many pictures of Walt Disney, but I think in my mind, if I picture Walt Disney, I kind of picture Howard Stark. Just because of the look. And I think also the music in that video plays a role in that too, of (laughs) providing this, whether or not it's true, like wholesome, idealistic version of Howard Stark that the whole world seems to have. And the music is, you know, of course that 50s housewife commercial music, like one of those, compared to all of Tony's rock music.
0: There we go. I slapped with another cease and desist letter from the people who are on the rights to that song from Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball's uh, descendants. That's fine. Um, they seem nice but, enough. But yeah, I, I agree totally. It's got that late 50s... You know, dun, 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 dun. And, you know, the way he's talking about the future. We're doing things to build the future, and it's very Walt Disney-esque. So while the film reel of his dad is rolling, we see Tony pull out a small device, and he uses it to check his blood toxicity level. Hmm. Which of course raises some eyebrows among moviegoers, I'm sure.
1: And while Tony is leaving the event and he's being bombarded with all of these extra people, Stanley's cameo in this movie is when he's Larry King, right?
0: I believe so. Excelsior. Sorry, I had to do that. I don't have a great Stanley impersonation. I've been working on it. Hello, true believers. I gotta work on that. Tony is subpoenaed to appear before a hearing of the Senate Armed Services Committee the next day. The feds want to take the Iron Man suit. Tony, of course, refuses to hand it over because, quote-unquote, I've successfully privatized world peace. Appearing at the hearing on behalf of the government are Justin Hammer, CEO of Hammer Industries... A rival weapons manufacturing company to Stark Industries, and Rhodey, who is asked to read selections from a report he has compiled that happened to portray Tony as a threat to national security.
1: Honestly, I really like the scene. I like the scene when Tony is doing the hearing, and then there's another scene in a future movie where Natasha is doing a hearing that I think are both really funny because. I don't know if you know this insider tip from someone who went to policy school in D.C. All of the Senate hearings are just for attention. They're not actually trying to resolve any issues here or make any serious decisions. But especially the tech-based hearings, so like one that Tony is doing. In real life, they're just trying to sway public perception. Although I would assume that the public already has some opinions TM of Tony Stark. I don't think they need a Senate (laughs) hearing to do that. That's definitely what Stern is doing here. Like Stern and Hammer together are trying to make Tony look bad. And Stern doesn't even have the capability to do it on the way that Hammer does. He just knows what to say to make little things stick. And also Stern is later Hydra. Spoiler alert. (laughs) On the topic of tech, since this is a Tony Stark movie, we're finally seeing that he's migrated to the iPhone style of phones. So that's nice. We've entered the modern era of cell phones here.
0: Tony Stark has entered the teens.
1: And then, of course, Hammer. This is the first time we get to see him, really. is such a tool, and I mean that with all of the pun intended. Calling him Anthony and Mr. (laughs) Stark and the God bless Iron Man and God bless America. Like, I, I do think he's not the best bad guy, we could have had but he knows what he's doing he knows that he is mm-hmm. meant to be juxtaposed to tony and that he's meant to be at the very least an annoyance to tony
0: if that's the kind of antagonist you want sam rockwell is a great choice because he does mildly curdling slimy kind of obsequiousness, fake everything really really well While all of this is going on, we see Ivan Vanko completing his whiplash suit. And we also discover that the palladium core that powers Tony's mini arc reactor is slowly poisoning him. Jarvis tells him that there is no other element on Earth that will suffice as a replacement. Pepper, who's unaware of Tony's condition, shows up to chide Tony for allowing the company to slide into disarray due to his neglect.
1: I love the part where he notices that she has a little bit of a cold, and he tells her to wear a surgical mask around me until you're better. Like, that's timely for us right now.
0: A little unnerving, wasn't it? Do you think, like, Gwyneth Paltrow had a cold, and that's why she was doing it? Because it just seems like such an odd thing to deliberately write into a script.
1: I imagine they don't have much time to really plan around people getting sick or things like that. So she probably did have a cold and they were like, well, let's just write it in. Or, I mean, RDJ could probably ad-lib something.
0: That's probably what happened. That's what I was thinking. I'm thinking maybe she had a cold and maybe she was coughing a lot that day on set or she was sniffling and they, you know, RDJ just made up stuff. That's just kind of the the nature of him.
1: That does make me think sidetrack a little bit. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is E.R., and since they're on a set, they do have some medical equipment and actors have gotten sick or like gotten colds on set and they have medication there. So you'll see sometimes a strategically placed IV stand because one of them is getting saline or fluids to stay hydrated while they're on the show.
0: Seriously? They actually have an, an IV
1: yeah, put they in have, while they're filming? they have all the stuff that they need. They have medical people to consult on the show. So... Somebody there knows how to put in an IV.
0: That sounds like kind of a stressful show to be on if you're dehydrated to the point where you need to be intubated intravenously. Sorry
1: for the side quests.
0: Side quests yes. on this show? No. <laughs>
1: we never, never do side quests.
0: We never did it. We never get distracted. Not once. Tony therefore appoints Pepper CEO of Stark Industries, effective immediately, citing that he feels it's necessary for the future of the company. He also appoints Natalie Rushman from the Stark Legal Department to be his new personal assistant. We see her quite deftly taking down Happy Hogan in the boxing ring in which he and Tony are working out.
1: I love that whole scene in the boxing ring. We've talked about this before and we'll talk about it again. I love the banter back and forth between Tony and Pepper, where it almost feels like they're having two separate conversations, but they're clearly talking about the same thing. I love Happy's little, oh, it's a little booty boot camp line. I think Natalie reacts quite appropriately and taking happy down
0: yeah he deserved it i also agree with you on the point about the tony pepper banter that's actually i think one of the things that kind of covers up some of the things that i see as flaws in this movie the banter between the two of them i wonder if some of this was had lived the two independent conversations happening at the same time and that's one of the best things about the movie i think tony arrives in monaco because he's fielding a team in the monaco grand prix which As I'm sure Emily can guess, I find rather awesome because I'm a car guy. There's that scene in the bar, which I love. There's just so much to unpack in that bar room scene. You've got this great witty repartee between Tony and Pepper, who's afraid that his hiring of Natalie is... A sexual harassment lawsuit waiting to happen. You've got the Elon Musk cameo. You've got Justin Hammer there to give Tony a hard time. You get Christine Everhart, the Vanity Fair reporter from the first movie, showing up to make Tony and Pepper uncomfortable. Pepper she did quite a spread on Tony last year and then tony says and she wrote a story as well and pepper says i'm gonna go wash i just love that scene yeah then sam rockwell when he's posing for pictures with tony is like says you know fromage say brie it's just so tacky in the most hysterical way possible
1: i think his superpower is how intolerable he is (laughs) i also (laughs) like when he does that slight breaking of the fourth wall when Tony's in the bathroom, and he looks up at the mirror and he says something like, well, what would you do?
0: Yeah, I had never noticed that in all the times I've seen this movie. Yeah, that was kind of a, a unique moment.
1: Because they don't do that ever, I think.
0: No, I There's think... There's never
1: an acknowledgement of the audience, essentially.
0: I don't think you're allowed to do that unless it's a Deadpool movie.
1: Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Well, that, that one, yeah.
0: Speaking of Tony's blood toxicity, it's continuing to rise, so in a fit of what I can only guess is death-wish-type bravado, Tony decides to race the Stark Grand Prix car himself. And surprise, surprise, Vanko attacks Tony on the racetrack with the whiplash suit and its electrified whips. Pepper and Happy arrive with a portable Iron Man suit, of course, which Tony then uses to subdue Vanko rather quickly. Okay, I get that Vanko knows that Tony is going to be in Monaco because he's fielding a race team there. I get that. But how did he know that Tony was going to be racing himself? It was like Vanko showed up on the racetrack expecting Tony to be there. Or did he just get really, really lucky?
1: I think a lot of this movie is just Vanko getting lucky. The further we get into it, I think a lot of it is just down to solid timing that only happens in a movie (laughs) that never happens in real life. But I think In general, given what he says later, I think the point is to destroy the Stark car and, like, lure Tony out. Because he knows Tony's going to be there anyway. So if he would just destroy his car and get Tony to come out and go toe-to-toe with him, it's possible he was just hoping that the stunt would work. And when he saw that Tony was in the car, he realized it worked better than he thought it had.
0: Yeah, I can't tell you how much Bunko destroyed those cars sense to me. It just broke my heart to see all those lovely Formula One cars get ripped in half.
1: I also love the whole bit, once Happy and Pepper get there. The back and forth of like, we need better security and hit him again. And Pepper's of course upset, you know, about the whole situation. He's like, are you out of your mind? And like, Tony can't grab the suitcase because... They're going back and forth and Happy's driving the car backwards and then forwards and the car door gets sawed off. And it's like when someone has control of the locks in the car and the other person can't get in. So they're like, oh, just stop messing with the handle.
0: Meanwhile, the bad guy walking towards you very quickly. It was a lot of sort of comedy of errors sort of thing. Tony confronts Vanko in his holding cell and Vanko accuses Tony and his forebears of being thieves and butchers saying that his father Anton invented the arc reactor and indicates that he attacked Tony just to prove that Iron Man wasn't invincible.
1: Vanko reminds me a lot of Zemo, which we'll talk about much later down the line, in the way that he... Doesn't want to win a fight. He doesn't want to take over and be the victorious villain. He just wants to, as Banco said, make God bleed. Destroy Tony from the inside, even if he doesn't get to see the fruit of his labor. Because he's playing a longer game, I guess, so to speak. Also, Tony speaks French. We hear him speak French to the guards. Natasha speaks French, at least according to her Natalie Rushman resume. Steve speaks French, because we hear it in Winter Soldier. Why have they never all spoken French together? <laughs> Can I put this in my Marvel sitcom?
0: They'll <laughs> have to pay you more.
1: An entire two, episode two of, yes of French. Two cans of Coke. <laughs> yes.
0: 20 bucks and two cans of Coke. 20
1: bucks and two cans of Coke. I will make the French-speaking Marvel Cinematic Universe sitcom.
0: Why don't they do it? Je ne sais pas, Amélie. Quel dommage. I think those are the only words of French I actually remember from way, way back in junior high.
1: I know how to order French fries in French, and that's about it.
0: How do you order French fries in French? Well... Or as they just, as they call them over there, fries No, or they. Frites.
1: They call them frites. Un frites, you play. Avec ketchup. Because they know ketchup.
0: Okay. <laughs> Impressed with Vanko's attempt to take Tony down, Hammer rakes Vanko out of jail, fakes his death, and engages in a partnership with him to build an army of armored suits to try and upstage Tony. Meanwhile, Pepper and Natalie are doing damage control on the image of Stark Industries after Tony's recent erratic behavior.
1: I love that they're both doing two separate phone interviews, but they're sitting right next to each other. I also like that Pepper is the CEO, and she could just say no. To those phone calls she could be too busy air quotes to answer a cable news show but it's like she can't stop herself from still being in that assistant mode
0: almost like she's trying to do two jobs at once and you get the feeling she doesn't trust natalie three, jobs at, once.
1: three jobs at once if you think about how keeping tony alive is a job in itself
0: that's yeah it's that's that is a job in and of itself Tony figures out who Ivanko is just as Rhodey walks in to warn him that the feds are going to take his suits if he doesn't start playing ball with them. Rhodey also suspects that Tony is not well, which takes us to Tony's birthday party. He thinks it'll be his last. So he gets ridiculously drunk while wearing the Iron Man suit and makes a complete jerk of himself. Pepper tries unsuccessfully to talk him down, so Rhodey suits up and dukes it out with Tony, completely trashing the Malibu pad. Rhodey then commandeers the suit he's wearing and takes it to the Air Force, who then order Hammer to weaponize it, much against Rhodey's recommendations. I can't think of any other way to put it more delicately, so I'm just going to come out and say it. I absolutely hate this scene. I think it's just gratuitous, and not even gratuitous in a fun or cool kind of way. I think it's just stupid. There's this pissing contest between Tony and Rhodey, and they're just destroying stuff. Tony's drunk. I get that. I'll grant him that. But Rhodey is completely sober. He's sober as a priest on Sunday, and his attempt to protect the party guests just completely backfires, because the next thing you know, He ends up getting into this pointless brawl with Tony that destroys a huge chunk of the house. Although, I did like that cool, another one bites the dust, it takes to mash up that the DJ is playing while they fight. I like the song itself, I like that mix, but the fact that they're playing it while these two are destroying the mansion, there's something about that that has irked me since I first saw the movie. I've never liked that scene. I
1: think Rhodey is just desperate. He's on the phone right before he goes into the house. And it's clear that the US government is breathing down his neck for him to produce something. And he's probably been dealing with that for six months at least. And by this point, Tony is putting Rhodey's own success at risk. You know, it's not just about Tony and what he's doing anymore, it's about Rhodey's life and Rhodey's job. And I'll grant you that the lead into this scene wasn't that good. Like, Rhodey does go from 1 to 100 way too quick,
0: <laughs> it goes to 100 very quickly. I think this also has at least a little bit to do with what we talked about during our Iron Man review about how uncomfortable and awkward Don Cheadle, at least to me, seemed in his first outing as Rhodey. It's like he didn't have a handle completely on who Rhodey was, at least not yet, and as such, he ends up coming off as a little inconsistent in his behavior, I think. The next morning, Tony's nursing a hangover at Randy's Donuts when he's met by Nick Fury and Natalie, who turns out to be, surprise, surprise, Agent Natasha Romanoff of S.H.I.E.L.D., a.k.a. The Black Widow, whose job it's been to keep an eye on Tony. Fury tells Tony he's there to help him with his palladium problem.
1: This scene makes me think that Iron Man 2 might have happened before Incredible Hulk, at least by a few months. Would you like to hear my theory?
0: Please, elaborate.
1: So... Fury talks to Tony at the end of the first Iron Man movie, and then it's Tony who talks to Ross in the bar about the Avengers. Right. Do you think that Tony talked to Ross after the first meeting with Fury, or do you think that Tony talked to Ross in between Iron Man 2 and the cutscene that we'll talk about where they say he's a consultant for the- He's not a team player.
0: That's a good question. Because
1: if he's Uh, not a team player, why would they send him to Ross in the first place?
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, I guess that cutscene in Hulk, I always wondered about that because he does seem, you know, for someone who's not a team player, he certainly does seem like a team player in that scene because he's trying to put together a team, which is very un-Tony-like. I don't know, you might be onto something. It's a very intriguing proposal, though. Meanwhile, Hammer and Vonko are having a little spat because Vanko is converting all of Hammer's suits into drones, which he says are better. Little does Hammer know that Vanko is using Hammer's tech to rebuild his whiplash weapons. Fury reveals to Tony that Howard Stark only intended the arc reactor to be a stepping stone to a much greater power source. He also reveals that Howard had Anton Vanko deported when it became clear that Anton was only in it for the money. As such, he became useless to the Russians and they shipped him off to Siberia, where he spent 20 years stewing over the Stark family. The sins of the father obviously get passed to Ivan. Finally, Fury informs Tony that Howard said that only he, Tony that is, had the means and knowledge to finish what he started. In other words, Tony somehow already has access to whatever it will take to improve the arc reactor and save himself from his impending painful palladium death.
1: Do you think Fury is pulling a stunt here? I'm thinking about in the Avengers movie, because all these movies are out and we have the benefit of hindsight, he finds Coulson's Captain America trading cards in his suit for the purpose of inspiring the team. But Fury is a spy. Even if he is telling the truth, I don't really trust him. And Howard does say in the video that Tony watches, that Tony will figure it out. But there's no way that Howard could have actually known that. Maybe Mm -hmm. Tony just needed a kick in the pants and Fury knew what would work. You know, I think this movie does expose a lot of Tony's daddy issues, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think Fury knew that. I think Fury knew talking about Howard and bringing in Howard would help, but I don't think Tony already had it in him.
0: The only thing is, I'm just going to talk this out loud, Fury knows that Tony is dying. Regardless of how he feels about Tony personally, he doesn't want him to die because he's just too important to what he's trying to put together. I'm not sure what sort of gamesmanship he could engage in that would somehow make Tony cure himself. It seems like quite a gamble to take when this guy's life is on the verge of ending. I don't know if that makes any sense.
1: Fury is kind of a gambler, though.
0: That's very true.
1: Because even in Avengers, putting the playing cards on could have backfired wildly.
0: Mm -hmm. To help him along, Fury leaves Tony with Agent Phil Coulson and a box full of archival materials left behind by Howard regarding the arc reactor. This prompts Tony to make a clandestine visit to Stark Industries where he finds a diorama of the last Stark Expo. Hidden in the model is a message to Tony from his father, a diagram of the atomic structure of a new element.
1: I think I like Tony even more when he's in discovery mode than when he's in the sort of smashing, building, crushing mode. I like his little, this is me snapping. I like when he's like thinking and clapping and sort of working through problems and giving Jarvis things to run and Jarvis turns back a no and he tries again. I like that more than I think I like the building montages.
0: I know what you mean. Anytime Tony is feverishly working those, you know, heads up display things in the air with his fingers and he's swiping left and right and moving things around. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's like he's in business mode. At that point, it's like it's no games. He's not messing around. It's all business at that point. I just want to interject here, because this is the point at which it happens. I love the fact that Tony drives the diorama back to the house <laughs> in his Audi convertible super sports car. Just the fact that the, the diorama sticking out of the top, it's so absurd. Tony reconfigures his lab to manufacture the new element as Agent Colson heads off to New Mexico for reasons as of yet unknown. Tony creates the new element and prepares to use it to power the arc reactor. Vanko calls Tony on the phone to taunt him and tell him that he's still alive and that he intends to take revenge upon him for everything he says Howard did to his family over the course of the last 40 years. Jarvis is unable to trace the call but determines its origin to be somewhere in the New York City tri-state area, realizing that Vanko plans on hitting the Stark Expo. Pepper, Natalie slash Natasha, and Happy arrive at the Stark Expo in time to see Hammer's presentation of the Hammer drones, and Rhodey in his Hammer 5 war machine suit. Tony, now wise to hammer's unholy alliance with Vanko, rushes to the Expo in his new triangular arc reactor powered Iron Man suit. And within moments, Vanko has taken control of not just all the hammer droids, but of Rhodey's War Machine too. The next thing you know, they all start shooting up the Expo. And this is where we do get that very cool fight between Iron Man, War Machine, and the drones. One of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. That little boy that Tony saves in the middle of the fight? That little boy, supposedly, is Peter Parker, which I think is really really cool. How exactly does Tony know that Vanko and Hammer are working together? I mean, just because they happen to be in the same area and they're both bad doesn't necessarily mean that they're in cahoots. Did I miss something here?
1: If you watch the scene, and I'll say this because I just watched this today before we started the podcast recording, Tony doesn't even really give Hammer the time of day. His beef is more clearly with Vanko, and where else would Vanko be right now if he wanted to take down Tony? Like, he would be at the Stark Expo, and he would be at the main presentation, and that just so happens to be Hammer's presentation. And it just so happens that Van Gogh and Hammer both have it out for Tony. And I don't think Van Gogh technically could be considered in cahoots with Hammer, because he's just using it toward his own end. And Hammer sort of rightfully presumes, based on his own knowledge, that the drones can't do anything more than make salute. So I don't think Hammer even has an idea that Vanco has an ulterior motive here. Hammer's a tool and he's dumb, but I think he portrays that onto other people so I think he thinks that Vanco is dumb and doesn't have any other plans. But I guess what does make this whole bit more confusing is that Natasha and Pepper head straight for Hammer because they're Hammer's drones anyway. And they don't seem to know about Vanko at all until he tells them. So I think this might just be another example of really good movie timing and not necessarily <laughs> great storytelling.
0: It's like a Charles Dickens novel. Everything just happens at the right time. Lots of brilliant coincidences. Natasha roughs up Hammer, who reveals that Vanko is running the drones from Hammer's New York City headquarters. She and Happy head there, and we get to see the Black Widow in action for the first time as she... Beats the living crap out of a bunch of guys in the same span of time it takes Happy to subdue one dude. Vanko is gone, but Natasha is able to reboot Rhodey's suit so he can regain control of it. Now we get that cool scene where Tony and Rhodey are fending off all the remaining drones before Vanko shows up in this absolutely ridiculous flying whiplash suit with the gigantic super long electrified whips. I've always liked the War Machine suit a little better than the Iron Man suit. There's just something perversely delightful about a suit that's just literally covered with guns.
1: And I, of course, like the flashy but still subtle, clean lines of Tony's suit.
0: Tony's Iron Man suit?
1: Iron Man suit, Iron Man
0: suit, okay. So yay to the tech, no to the fashion.
1: Most of the time, yeah, no. His fashion is pretty terrible. As is most rich tech boy CEO fashion the only well-dressed tech boy from a superhero movie that is well-dressed is the baddie i guess from venom the pharma ceo
0: i remember so little of that movie other than the few bits that just really bothered me so i don't even remember who the bad guy was in that movie i'm sorry
1: i mean i I don't remember his name either but
0: i don't remember a thing about the bad guy in venom that movie just kind of flew past me
1: trust me when i say that his clothes fit
0: i will take your word for it all i can say is i get my suits from men's warehouse and they suit me just they suit me (laughs) no pun intended just fine there's a plug for you you're welcome men's warehouse i know you guys filed for bankruptcy recently so uh, i'm expecting your check in the next couple weeks Tony and Rhodey subdue Vanko, but then he sets all the suits, including his own, to self-destruct. Tony saves Pepper from being blown up, they enjoy some witty repartee, and they kiss. Later, Tony's looking over info about the Avengers initiative, as well as Natasha's assessment that Tony should not be recruited by the Avengers. Fury does decide to retain Tony as a consultant however. And then finally, we get that post-credits scene where we see Agent Coulson arriving in New Mexico to investigate a massive crater in the middle of the desert. Inside that crater is a very familiar-looking hammer. To be continued. And that is Iron Man 2. This is the part where we talk about characters and actors.
1: I think this is our first time that we've gotten to talk about characters a second round. I
0: don't Mm -hmm. think we've
1: really gotten to talk about anybody more than just their one movie so far.
0: This being an Iron Man movie, we have to start with Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark slash Iron Man.
1: I like that we're slowly seeing Tony grow up into the character we see sort of at the end of his arc in the universe he's still very much the tony that we met and followed in the first iron man movie but i think coming to grips with his mortality a second time now does change him i think with tony it's probably a one step forward two steps back process in terms of character growth and you know he's never not going to be a brat he was just raised to be full of himself (laughs) but i think he does start to think about others A little tiny bit.
0: Like I said before, Tony's always going to be Tony, regardless of how much personal growth he undergoes. No matter how selfless he ultimately becomes, he's always going to be at least a little bit of a smartass. He still likes to brag. He has a very high opinion of himself. But you know you can tell that he's slowly learning. It's like you say, it's you know it's going to take him a little while. Well, and um, I put
1: this in our section for Pepper. But even the part where he's driving through the canyon and he stops to get the strawberries to take them to Pepper, and she is deathly allergic to strawberries, and it's the one thing <laughs> in the entire world that she can't have. And he's like, "See, I knew there was something about strawberries. I just couldn't remember it." And it's <laughs> like, well, he is trying. I don't think six months ago he would have bought the strawberries. So at least there's that.
0: This is where we get our first real glimpse of Tony's daddy issues. Uh, It's where we learn that Howard Stark was a pretty distant father and cold towards Tony for much of his life. I mean, clearly, he loved Tony, but it's still entirely possible to love your kid and still be a crappy parent. Don Cheadle as Colonel James' Rhodey Rhodes.
1: I know in the last movie we both said that we liked Terrence Howard more, But I do think that the chemistry between Don Cheadle and RDJ is better. And I think even for this being their first go around, and even for Rhodey the character going 1 to 100 multiple times in this movie for kind of (laughs) no reason, I do appreciate how much Rhodey did try to defend Tony during the hearing because he knew that it was a sham and a setup. But he still gave Tony crap when he deserved it. So when his character was sort of exhibiting more typical behavior and not being kind of off the rails. I think the reaction between the two of them, I think was really, really good.
0: I would certainly hope that the chemistry between Don Cheadle and Robert Downey Jr. was good considering that from what I've read, Terrence Howard and RDJ did not get along very well at all. But yes, I will agree with you on the friendship aspect. What's interesting about early Rody we'll call it that, is that you know, he's still a good soldier who follows orders, and he essentially steals one of Tony's suits to give it to the Air Force, which is, at this point... A far cry from the Rhodey that we see giving General Ross the proverbial finger in Infinity War several films later.
1: Not necessarily, though, because Rhodey does end up agreeing with Ross. Regarding? I mean, him and Tony are essentially on Ross's side. In during terms of, Civil War? Yeah.
0: Yes, that would not qualify as early Rhodey. True. But it's still a far cry from Infinity War, which is like, what, three, two or three years later. I still think the Rhodey that we see kind of at the very end, post-Civil War Rhodey, I think is very different. The injury that he suffers in Civil War, I'm sure, has a lot to do with that. But I think it could just be, yeah, well, Civil War changed a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, so, Civil War changed pretty much everybody. <laughs> pretty
0: much everybody. But it's, yeah. okay, point taken. I don't know, I just get the sense that Rhodey earlier on is still much more of a soldier. And it's not until much later on that he kind of... Develops a more independent street. That's just the right. feeling that I yeah. get.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that.
0: Gwyneth Paltrow as Pepper Potts. Despite the fact that you see more of her later on in the MCU, for some reason, Pepper really seems at her most take charge in this movie than she does at any other point in the MCU. It's just the sense that I get, you really see her running this company and having to be on point all the time and just not taking any BS from anyone. And to complement that, and like we've talked about already, I think her chemistry with RDJ is in peak form in this movie. I think some of their dialogue was ad lib. it just seems like that to me. The Tony pepper lines in this movie are some of my favorite of the entire mcu like you were dying why didn't you tell me that i was gonna make you an omelet and tell you and then on the roof at the end when pepper says she's she's quitting the ceo job she's like i'll i'll handle the transition but what about the press you've only had the job for a week it's gonna see what with you it's like dog years i mean it's like the presidency i don't think you get that in any of the other movies it's just something about their banter in iron man 2 that i find really enjoyable
1: and i like to think about again we have the benefit of hindsight but the growth of their relationship from the first iron man movie all the way up to Endgame. spoiler alert they go from tony as the jerk boss to this movie where Tony is the jerk but he's also kind of a friend. But then again, he's doing the one step forward, two steps back thing with Mm -hmm. knowing that there's something important about the strawberries but what is it? (laughs) I don't know. Let's bring some and try it. To Endgame where they are fully together as a couple and they've gone through all this stuff together. It's just it's one of the more interesting, long lasting relationships of the MCU.
0: Anytime you have a long running series of anything, whether it be a movie franchise or a TV series, As long as you see characters growing and changing, your characters, for the most part, should not be the same at the end that they were in the beginning. And Tony and Pepper, their relationship is clearly changed considerably by the time we get to the end of Endgame. So I agree completely. It's a very sort of organically grown continuum. It's one of the best things about the MCU. Mickey Rourke as Ivan Vanko slash Whiplash, as the resident old guy in this podcast. I kind of remember Mickey Rourke having this reputation of being sort of a washed-up 80s B-list movie star. He was in films like Diner and Nine and a Half Weeks, which were kind of hits. Angel Horror, The Pope of Greenwich Village, and then he kind of faded into obscurity for a while, but he ended up having this mini career renaissance after the wrestler came out in 2008 it was critically acclaimed oscar-nominated performance and suddenly he was a hot commodity again and i'm sure that that was a big reason he ended up in this movie now i haven't seen the wrestler or most of Mickey Rourke's other movies, frankly. But, I don't know, I must be missing something, because I thought he was kind of unimpressive in Iron Man 2. I just didn't see him as truly menacing in any way, shape, or form. And I found it hard to take him seriously, especially with that ridiculous Russian accent. At least, I thought it sounded ridiculous.
1: Yeah, I don't have any particular opinions about Mickey Rourke. I haven't seen any of the other movies, either. I do like the character. I do like Banco. Not so much that I care about any of his sort of intentions here. But I like a sort of quiet, brooding villain. Vanko is not the type of guy to pull the strings or be in charge. And we don't see much of it, but he clearly answers to his father. And then when he's left alone, there wasn't anyone to point him in any direction until Hammer. And so I think Hammer's meant to be the sort of real villain in this movie, I guess. Because he's the ones essentially pulling the strings and allowing Van to get to the point where he could fight Tony and try and dismantle Tony. But like I said, I don't think Van goal is to win or to be like, successfully take over Tony. I think his goal is to just hurt him. More than anything. He doesn't particularly want to beat Tony. Tony can take Mm. himself down. You just have to give him a little push.
0: Yeah, he almost takes himself down on several occasions. But to your point, two things. First of all, including something that just literally popped into my mind like 30 seconds ago. I agree. He doesn't want to kill Tony as much as he wants to make him suffer, ruin his reputation, make God bleed. As we've been saying, if you'll pardon me for crossing film franchises for a moment, he's he's kind of got a little bit of a Joker thing going on. Some people just want to watch the world burn. I think that's Vanko. Like we said, he just wants to ruin Tony as much as he can. The thing that just occurred to me when we were talking just now, I hadn't realized both Tony and Vanko in very different ways have daddy issues related to connection with them. In the case of Tony, he didn't have a particularly good relationship with his dad, and he misses that connection, and he still feels that he has to live up to some sort of standard that he felt that his dad had for him in order to earn his love. Vanko probably already had that, but he's just so enraged. It's like his connection to his father is so strong that he blames Tony and the entire Stark dynasty for his father's ruination, and he will go to the ends of the earth to take revenge. So that's something that just popped into my mind. I thought I'd put that out there since we were talking about it. So we were talking about Justin Hammer, played by Sam Rockwell.
1: Like I said earlier, Hammer is rightfully named because he is such a tool. (laughs) He is so icky and gross and I don't like him one bit, but I think that's exactly what you want in a Tony rival because Tony's also a jerk but it's just different somehow. Like when Tony is at his absolute worst, where he's being patronizing and he's a womanizer, I still don't find him as gross as I find Justin Hammer. And I think that's a good thing though. I think that's like exactly what you want. That's when an actor is really playing a role. Like I'm sure Sam Rockwell is a nice guy and he's totally a normal dude. The Justin Hammer character in particular is just so repulsive to me.
0: they're both jerks, but Tony somehow finds a way to be an endearing jerk.
1: Right, and, and Hammer hasn't quite figured that out, and I think Hammer knows that too.
0: Oh, I know he knows that. It's not just Tony's success that he envies. I'm sure it's it's his whole aura. is his popularity. It's the cult of personality. When he goes out on stage, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, when he goes out on stage at the Stark Expo, Hammer does. I don't know if it's some vain attempt to try to duplicate tony's entrance but you know he's doing the james brown thing while he's walking on stage and pepper is kind of like rolling her eyes when he walks out on stage he knows they're both jerks but he knows that tony is a much more lovable jerk than he is and i think that's one of the reasons he hates him so much as i said i love sam rockwell as an actor i've loved him in everything i've seen him in like galaxy quest Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Did you know that he had a small role in the first live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back in 1990? That is something I did not find out until just this week. He does the voice of Ivan in that, in my opinion, rather disappointing one and only Ivan movie on Disney Plus that just came out. He, Like you said, he does the icky, gross, slimy jerk stuff really well. I don't think Hammer is a particularly formidable villain in the traditional sense. He doesn't have any superpowers, unless, like you said, ickiness is a superpower. Doesn't strike me as too bright, you know, he's got all the social grace of a wounded cockroach, but he does have one thing. He's got money, as I'm sure we're all very well by now, you can be the stupidest jerk in the world. If you got money, you've probably got at least a little power and influence. And Hammer's made it his mission to use whatever power that he has to ruin Tony. Which is why teaming up with Vanko makes sense. Both of them want to ruin Tony. Vanko has the brains and Hammer has the cash. Scarlett Johansson as Natalie Rushman slash Natasha Romanoff slash the Black Widow. So this is where we meet the Black Widow for the first time in the MCU and for those of you who didn't know, Emily Blunt was actually originally Marvel's first choice for the role, but she had to pass due to her commitments to the Gulliver's Travels movie starring Jack Black, a movie that frankly I didn't even know existed. Her loss was Scarlett Johansson's game though, and ours as well, because I can't imagine the MCU without her, frankly. I mean, she doesn't have a particularly big role in this outing, but we do get a really good sense of the basics of the character, her abilities and so forth. Scarlett has appeared in so many Marvel movies now, but whenever someone wants to put together clips of Natasha in action, the fight at Hammer's office from this movie almost always gets used in those clip reels. That shot of her dropping down into her signature fighting stance and looking up, it's become almost iconic. We also establish her ability to take on almost any role as part of a covert op. I mean, if I'd gone into this movie completely cold, knowing next to nothing about Marvel and or having stayed away from any trailers or casting news, I might not have suspected that something was up with Natalie Rushman.
1: Right. I definitely had no previous knowledge coming into this movie. So for me, she was just Natalie Rushman until the scene in Randy's Donuts. And I think the first time I saw this movie, I felt like something was up in the beginning, given the boxing scene. Like, the women in... Iron Man movies are smart and capable. Like, you've got Pepper and the Vanity Fair girl. And are those the only two girls that I can think of from the Iron Man movies? Oh, there's, what's her
0: name? There's, what's her name? I keep forgetting the the old flame in Iron Man 3, whose name I can't remember.
1: But Natalie Rushman is the first one who is mentally smart and also physically capable. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think that was my first sign that maybe there might be something different about her because that's not typically, from our small two-person case study so far, that's not typically how women are presented in the Iron Man universe. I guess if we're going to call this like a sub-universe of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh-huh. But it is a superhero movie, you know, so something is up with everyone. And I think this is a good way to introduce Natasha to the universe. It sets her up well to clearly be on Steve's side, or essentially S.H.I.E.L.D.'s side, because her and Stark get off so rocky.
0: John Favreau, of course, returns as Happy Hogan. It just occurred to me, Happy spends two out of three Iron Man movies getting the crap kicked out of him. Technically, he gets nearly blown up in Iron Man 3, but you get the idea.
1: Aren't the first two Iron Man movies the ones that he directed?
0: That is correct.
1: (laughs) I wonder why that's the case. Also, he nearly eats it in Far From Home when he's trying to protect the kids.
0: Oh, that's true. Oh, uh, in London. That's right, I forgot about that, yep.
1: Poor Happy, huh?
0: If you notice, he's in more mortal peril in the films that he doesn't direct. (laughs) It's like he's lost that element of control over Happy's livelihood, and now he's at the whims of other directors. Samuel L. Jackson is back as Nick Fury. Apparently, he almost wasn't in this movie due to a contract negotiation breakdown, but something happened, and he ultimately ended up getting a nine-picture deal.
1: And similar to Coulson's Thor tie-in, Fury does also have the line in the Randy's Donuts about, I have bigger problems in the whole Southwest region than you. Hint, hint. I like that little call. I love that whole Randy's Donuts scene. I think the first time I saw this movie, it was my dream to be able to sit in a giant fake donut and not, <laughs> just not be bothered by the world. You know, no one can talk to me. I'm just gonna eat my donuts here in peace. Just leave you, me alone.
0: You've been to Southern California before. Have you ever been there?
1: No, I have not. Wonder how many people after that movie tried to climb up. <laughs> to climbing the donut.
0: The donut. <laughs> you probably got nope. Man, please don't. Please climb down from the donut. We're not allowed to go up there. Ma'am, oh. please
1: come down from the donut. <laughs>
0: Uh, Speaking of Phil Coulson, Clark Gregg comes back as Agent Coulson, albeit very briefly. I think he's in this movie even less than he was in the first one.
1: He gets a lot more airtime in the first Iron Man movie, for sure. I don't know if this story is true or not, but I have always heard a story from Clark Gregg that he said when they were filming Iron Man 2 and he got the lines and he's telling Tony that he has to go to New Mexico for this op for Fury, he asked the producers or the directors or whoever and he said so where's Coulson going they go oh uh well uh it's it's Thor you're in Thor and that's how he found out
0: I've never heard that story before that's pretty cool
1: yeah I'm not sure if I it's hope it's true, true but it's funny I either hope, way
0: <laughs> I hope yeah I hope it's true because it sounds really cool
1: and I think that's the thing with the Marvel movies because you get locked in for a set you know like nine movies or however many movies so they don't have to tell you about the next movie. You just know you're gonna be in it. So that's why I kind of believe that story. I find it more believable than some other kind of story where they just wouldn't tell you anything about any of the movies at all. But if he was already locked in for a certain number of movies and these movies sort of happen around the same time as each other, I think they could probably get away with saying, oh, well, you're in Thor, so it'll make sense then. (laughs)
0: We talk about the music of the Marvel movies all the time, so it seems only appropriate to talk about that here. John Debney takes over for Ramin Djawadi to score this film, although apparently he did continue collaborating with Tom Morello, like, Jawadi did in the first film. And you can kind of tell that because even though the primary composer is new, the music is overall fairly different, but there's still a lot of that heavy Tom Morello guitar in there as well. But as was the case with Jawadi's score, we still have no consistent theme for Iron Man at this point. But we do have more ACDC this time around. The main soundtrack for the film, it's basically just an ACDC Greatest Hits album, even though only Shoot to Thrill and Highway to Hell actually appear in the film. But it's a good album. It's a fun album to listen to. So that's it for Iron Man 2. We will be back in a few more weeks with Thor.
1: If you couldn't have guessed from how many times we mentioned Thor.
0: We dropped a lot of hints, which is exactly what they did in Iron Man 2. So yes, we'll be back in a few weeks with our review for Thor. And that'll take us up to like right around the holiday season. So until then, thanks for listening, everybody. And we will see you in a few weeks.
1: Have a good night.
0: Okay, I get that Vanco knows that Tony's going to be in Morocco because he's Morocco? feeling a rape. Hmm? Morocco? 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 Monaco? Morocco? Monaco. They're closer than you would think geographically, but no, they're not the same. Let's try that again.